This is your Black Girl Songbook, the place and the space where Black women in music receive the credit we are due. This is where the girls are, but sometimes, let's talk about it, a lot of the time, actually, we want to hear it from the boys. Right? Do you hear that soprano? Clear as a crystal bell. I'm your host, Danielle Smith. And today, you and I are going to talk, one, a bit about Denise Williams, a couple of her most beloved hits, and then we're going to get into some of my favorite songs from male artists. Sometimes, like when we interviewed Terrius the Dream Nash during season two, Black Girl Songbook does represent for the guys. So like Denise says, it's time again to hear it for them. Before we move on, though, this is me checking in with you. How are you doing? Like, actually, have you been eating? Have you been sleeping? Have you been able to take some time for you to walk or to read? Or maybe we're blessed and this is your moment, hanging out with the Black Girl Songbook crew. Music can be a part of a commitment to wellness. It's not ever going to take the place of doctor's orders, but music can give a rhythmic structure for relaxation and intentional breathing. This is actually something that I do often to chill myself out. Music can help you visualize things, make you imagine things that evoke like a calmness or a happiness. I think about Sade's, is it a crime? And you know when she says like, I've never been to Victoria Lake. Victoria Lake is in Nigeria, but it's just the way she sings about it. I think about this placid, beautiful lake. I I can listen to Sade sing all the time, over and over, but I will listen to that one verse. Your love is wider than Victoria Lake. My love is taller, taller than the Empire State. It dives, it jumps, it ripples like the deepest ocean. How are you not, well, at least me, How are you not relaxing to that? You can also be active, though, with music. If you're able, you can dance. You can also be inspired to put a pen to paper or at least fingertips to keyboard. You can sing. Maybe not as well as Denise Williams, who we just heard. But still, Denise's actual name is June Denise Williams. And like the Jacksons, Williams is from Gary, Indiana. Let's Hear It for the Boy is her number one pop hit from 1984. Williams is one of the best to ever do it, really. She doesn't get talked about enough. That's why we're here to talk about her. But she doesn't get talked about enough. I actually write about Denise Williams a lot in my new book. It's called Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. The book is the project, really, of my life. Shine Bright 
inspired me to get on this Black Girl Songbook journey. And I'm just so excited right now because my book is really coming out in like, what, seven days? You can pre-order it right now. It is a real thing. You can pre-order it at Walmart online or go in the store. Go into your local stores. Go into a store owned by somebody from a marginalized community. Go into a Black-owned bookstore. Go there or go to their site. If you can't you know, do that, you can pre-order at Target or you can go to IndieBound or Bookshop or Barnes & Noble, Amazon, whatever. You can also go to your local library. The librarians miss you. They like you. I like Let's Hear It for the Boy. I like it. And like is different from love. Let's Hear It was produced by the great producer, though, the great keyboardist, George Duke. You remember this from Mr. Duke. Let's Hear It for the Boy appeared on the soundtrack to a Kevin Bacon movie. Footloose, also from 1984, and it was nominated in the Best Original Song category for an Oscar. And just to give the details and to tie everything in a little bow, or I should say a big bow, the background singers on Let's Hear It for the Boy, their names are Shannon Rubicam and George Merrill. They went on to form a duo, a group called Boy Meets Girl. They had a hit in 1988 called Waiting for a Star to Fall. You might remember that song, but it's not even about that song. All respect. Rubicam and Merrill went on to write two songs that you may be super familiar with. What? Yes. And also this one. I Want to Dance with Somebody from Whitney Houston and How Will I Know from Whitney Houston are both number one hits for Whitney Houston, aside from just being, you know, loved and cherished and all of those things. It's wild to me how these things are all tied together and you can in some way tie the late Whitney Houston to Denise Williams. And since I made such a big deal about merely liking Let's Hear It for the Boy, let me say that the song from Denise Williams that speaks to me so clearly, the song that I love from her, the song that can, as we were just speaking about, relax me, even modulate my breathing and make me remember that there is a place called freedom because there is, and we make it every day, that song. From Denise Williams, the great Denise Williams. It's from Williams' 1976 album, This Is Nisi, which was produced by Earth, Wind, and Fire founder Maurice White. You know it when you hear it. Yeah. 
the song is called Free. Like, what? It's just, I don't know. And what's funny to me, and again, I write about this in Shine Bright, is that you hear how it it just kind of moves in kind of this way that makes you think about pre-disco. And the reason that I say that is because I feel like Donna Summer's last dance, go and listen to it, was influenced by Denise Williams Free. It was. Denise hadn't just been waiting around and twiddling her thumbs, hoping to surprise herself by becoming a huge pop star. No, Denise as quietly as it's kept saying background for Stevie Wonder. Let me tell you how, when I say she sings background, just let me tell you the type of background that she was singing. Denise Williams sings on Stevie Wonder's 1972 talking book. She sings on 1973's Inner Visions and Fulfillingness's first finale. Denise Williams sings background on Stevie Wonder's 1976 Songs in the Key of Life. That's like one of the best albums ever recorded. Ever. And she's right there singing on it. I have a new puppy, by the way. You want to know what my puppy's name is? My puppy's name is Key. K-E-Y. After what? Songs in the Key of Life. That's how seriously I take it. Denise Williams contributed background vocals. Listen, not just for the genius that is Stevie Wonder. Speaking of, let's hear it for that boy, right? She has sung background for Roberta Flack, Minnie Ripperton, James Taylor, The Weather Girls, and as we just mentioned, Maurice White. She has also sang background for Earth, Wind, and Fire. And just to make her super sexy and one of my absolute favorites, she sings background on the Emotions 1976 Flowers, which is great. We love it. What people don't realize about Gary, Indiana is that it's right outside of Chicago. If you lived in Gary, you partied and you got it done in Chicago. The emotions are from Chicago. I get it. But Denise Williams also sings background on the Emotions Elite. 1977 Rejoice, the album with Best of My Love. I have to calm down. Oh, I can't. Seriously, the Best of My Love might be not my first favorite song because that was probably ABC from the Jacksons, who she's also affiliated with. But the Best of My Love might just be the third or the fourth favorite song I ever had. I still know every single word. I need to do my research because I don't know if Denise is actually singing background on the best of my love. But to be honest, I don't care because every song on that album is bomb. As a matter of fact, let me just throw it to 
Best of my love real quick. How do you not love that record? Like, that's a record right there. And Denise Williams is affiliated. She is adjacent to all of this. This is her scene. To take it back to Stevie Wonder for just a second, Denise Williams co-wrote the song Free with some of her colleagues from the Stevie Wonder community. Free was a top R&B hit, and it was a global pop hit. Nobody doesn't like Free. Free is that song. Free has been sampled by Mike Geronimo. Please act like you know. It's been sampled by Kirk Franklin. It's been sampled by Mariah Carey. Free has been covered by everyone from Marcus Miller with Corinne Bailey Ray on vocals. It's been covered by Seal. But one of my favorite covers of Free is from 1993. It's from the forever underrated Shantae Moore. Shantae has a beautiful voice. Shantae sings free pretty much for most of the song in line with Denise Williams' original vocal arrangement. But her voice does at some points go a little bit lower. And is it me? Or does Shantae move the song into a like super gorgeous and a bit more speedy kind of mid-tempo? It's such a great version of Denise Williams' original version of Free. And the thing is, you have to listen to the whole song, though. But in the meantime, in between time, Donnie, will you please just go on ahead and play us a few notes? Don't you just want to go listen to the full song right now? Do yourself a favor and go stream it at Spotify. But now, let's do it. Let's hear it for the boys. I'm thinking that our story consultant, Tajrani, might have some questions for me about maybe Usher, maybe Tevin Campbell. I know she's going to ask me about Wale. She better ask me about Drake. And I know she probably has a few surprises. I'm ready, Taj. So first things first, we're starting out talking about DJ Quick and his song, Born and Raised in Compton. Now, this is a song that you chose that you wanted to talk about. But I wanted to start with, you know, whenever you hear artists from the West Coast, what does it trigger inside of you? Like, what's the feeling that you get when you hear them, especially if it's a song from when you were a little bit younger? Um, And what about that is different from artists from other regions? That's a good way to look at it because it definitely does uh, spark something in me. You know, I imagine if you're from Atlanta and you hear Outkast or, you know, if you're from Florida and you hear who Luke or nobody likes Flo Rida but me or Flo Rida, 
Yes, I love. <laughs> I love Florida. <laughs> I love it. And let's keep. I'm happy everybody's speaking up for Florida because listen, I want them apple bottom jeans and the boots with the fur. But um, when I hear music from the West, one, I just hear so much familiarity in the way people are speaking. You know, California is nothing but the South moved West, mm-hmm. and you hear that like very distinctive California. I hesitate to call it a drawl, but there is a certain way that we speak. It definitely is. Knowing people now from LA and also knowing people now from Oakland, there's a sound in y'all's voices and it's so clear that it's part of that great migration. It is, right? Like, yeah, it's like kind of like no matter how long the family has been here, that sound, especially in a a city like L.A. where there's so many different languages and so many different ways that people speak, that sound is never lost. It really isn't. It's in your soul. I remember when I first moved to New York, everyone said, oh, my God, you country. And then when I moved back to Los Angeles, even recently, people say, why do you talk like you're from New York? Why do you talk like you're from back east? But then when I speak with my sister and my family, I find myself speaking like I'm from Oakland or like I went to high school in Los Angeles, which I did. Um, I found my I find myself sounding very much like a California girl. But I love when I hear you know, I know everybody goes to uh, Dr. Dre and Death Row. People know that my heart is with Tupac in so many ways. Two Shorters from Oakland, MC Hammer, all of these artists, Souls of Mischief. But the thing is, for me, I love the way Hutch from Above the Law sounds and top most maybe with the exception of Tupac, who is a special case. I want to hear Quick over everybody. Where were you when you first heard DJ Quick? I was living in Oakland. This was like 1987. We used to throw house parties at this apartment this, that my sister and I used to live in. And I remember, this is so awful, Quick has a song called Sweet Black P-U-S-S-Y <laughs> that I love. And um, whoever was DJing was like, oh, because we was having parties, like you had to pay to get in. We was trying uh-uh, to get... Hold what? on. Not Stop. charging at the door for a house party. <laughs> um, rent needed to be paid. So, yes, I think we were charging like $5 a pop. We had a name for it. I think we called it like Soul Kitchen or something like that. And I would cook chicken wings and cornbread. How hood is that? And, yes, we had a DJ who basically was spinning for the food. And I remember when he said, like, can he play that? Like, was it, you know, were we going to be mad if he played that song? And everybody, even the girls, was like, no, play it. We loved that album. It was his debut album. He sounded like all the boys that I had crushes on when I went to high school in Los Angeles. And I just liked the music. And when I started writing um, on a national level was maybe around 89, 90, 91, something like that. I can't even remember. But 
I wrote, I think my first column for Spin Magazine was about DJ Quick and Born and Raised in Compton, the song in particular. Um, And then I think I pitched him to LA Weekly and went to his home and profiled him for LA Weekly. And that was a wild day. So I just, before we get into the song Born and Raised in Compton, you said that at that party, the DJ asked you guys, like, you know, is it okay if I play this? Uh, coming up, when I was coming up, I mean, it was a time of back that asked the, uh, the whisper song. You know, there's no, and nobody was asking any of us how we felt about any of that stuff being played, just because I think that during the 90s, there's just the sexualization in music that happened. And by the time we got to the early 2000s, we just kind of accepted it. Um, so really quickly, I just wanted to know, why do you think that those types of respectability politics changed over time or what shifted? Because it's like, is it the people playing the music? Is it the people making the music? Or is it the people in the room listening? Well, I will say this with regard to the DJ asking permission. I think that had to do a lot with the fact that he was actually in our home. Mm-hmm. I think that when I used to go to parties on campus and stuff or uh, go to clubs and things like that, no one was asking anything. Now, I don't know if we, what our version of back that ass up was when I was in school, but if I think about it, yeah, I don't know if we had it. I think hip hop kept pushing the envelope. It's what, artists are supposed to do, mm-hmm. but I don't know why it had to go in that direction of, you know what it was now that I think of it, the thing, it was too short talking about biatch and that, that was controversial deeply in the Bay. And, but I don't remember anybody asking permission. Can I play shorts music? I mm-hmm. don't, I don't. People were offended. And as so Often happens, I think, in rap, especially at the beginning when we all felt like we were invested in it and we wanted the sound overall to win. We wanted the, we wanted the culture to grow. You just kind of wanted to be on rap's side of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that was right or okay, but it was like that. So what is it about the song Born and Raised? In Compton. Second verse. It's the second verse. Oakland is an underdog city. Everybody wants to put us number one behind San Francisco, which no. Um, Everyone wants to put Oakland behind Los Angeles. Sorry, not. And I feel like if you're from Oakland, one of the things that is common to natives in particular, or at least was, was very much having a chip on your shoulder. It's like being from Memphis, you know, instead of Nashville. It's like being from Tallahassee or Jacksonville instead of, you know, Miami. So there's some lines in the song, and don't get me to rapping because... No, please, please do. But but I just want to say... When he says, so there's a verse where he said, basically he's like, but he starts talking about something that's based in fact. 
you know, rap was super competitive in Los Angeles as it was everywhere. And at a certain point when Quick was recording this album and he used to produce for other people, somebody broke into his home studio and stole all of his equipment. So this is about that. And he basically says, um, because way back in the day, somebody must have wanted me to quit because they broke in my house and cold stole my shit. But this was the line that I used to say, these next lines I used to say to myself when I felt even after I moved to New York, when I felt this is very competitive in, in, in music journalism, in black music journalism, in hip hop journalism, for a woman in rap, a woman in media, I felt like people were always trying to stunt on the kids. So I had to keep my mind right. And when he says they must have thought that I was going to play the punk role. Just because my equipment got stole, but I ain't going out like no suck ass clown. They found they couldn't keep it dope. Nigga, Delta, hit some bass in your face, motherfucker, silly sucker ass clucker. Now you duck it because you can't stop a brother. Because I'm true to the game. You're lame and things ain't going to never be the same. Let me tell you something about me and those lines in my youth. Mm-mm. No. And, and, and to be honest, even now. And Taj, you should really go on because we could turn this into the DJ Quick Hour of no, Appreciation. I, no, I know. Because, I mean, the way that you just wrapped those lines was giving, if we go to karaoke, that is your song and nobody's going to want to get up after you because there was fire in the voice. Oh, listen. you're ready. I'm going to tell you this too. When I was first dating my husband, Elliot Wilson, just early dates, you know what I'm saying? Early times. We're talking about music. Like, I knew him as a friend before we started dating. So he kind of knew my tastes and things like that. He used to write for Vibe before he went over to XXL and all of that. And he was asking me questions about music. And I was like, nah, definitely DJ Quick, born and raised in Compton. He was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Put it on, put it on, put it on. I put it on. And then I started rapping it. And he will tell you right now, he says, I knew when I saw you rap that record with him. He's like, I don't know if we was going to get married, but I knew you was about to be my girl, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. <laughs> I love that. Um, so we're moving on to Aubrey Graham, a.k.a. Drake, mm. a.k.a. the certified lover boy, a.k.a. the man who can jump into any genre and make it work for him at any moment. And he does it flawlessly over and over and over and over again. Um, so like <laughs> that's a dope ass introduction right there. That's that comes. Yes. Yes, Tosh. Thank you. Thank you. I had Aub- to. Aubrey I had is somewhere to. thanking you. I had to because at the end of the day, whether you're a fan or not, you can't. He's a person you can't deny. It's like trying to deny Michael Jordan's greatness or LeBron's greatness. It's kind of like you're going to turn and look at a person like you're just a hater because when he comes on in the club, you're not going to sit down because you can't because that's all we have to listen to. Yes. But, you know, I just called him hip hop certified lover boy. And so I just wanted to start off. Do you think there's any rapper that's done songs with emotions that's really played to women the way that he has? Because I kind of see him as this generation's LL Cool J and the way that he draws women into the magic that he has. He knows that bag. He knows that pocket. I think you're absolutely right to call up LL Cool J. Absolutely. I need love and all those different kinds of things. Um, LL also, you know, like Drake, 
extremely good looking dude. I think you could also call up someone who I think is good looking too is Wale, who I think we're going to talk about hopefully about Wale and songs like Lotus Flower Bomb and things like that. Uh, I think that Wale is definitely in that pocket um, as well. Those are the main people, I think, like the romantic rappers. Yeah, those are the ones. So before I get into the song we're going to talk about, I just wanted to know, what was the moment where you first knew that Drake was going to be an international superstar? Versace, 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 Versace. Versace, Versace, Medusa head on me like I'm Numenati. This is a gated community. Please get the fuck off the property. Oh, I really thought you were going to be like uh, so far gone. So not even Drake's own song. Mm-mm, no, it was um, I, I was in a in a Uber again with my husband and, you know, he's always obviously listening to rap and he was like playing it. And I was like, ooh, 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 what's that? What's that? What's that? He was like, oh, it's this Migos, that Drake, this. And I wasn't really that into Drake and was not into Migos and was hypnotized. He's just so good at letting people know how he feels about the moment, um, how he feels about you. And I know we were just talking about him as someone who can be, you know, romantic or talk about his feelings towards, you know, romantic partners. But I'm talking about when he's mad. Drake is ruthless. And I come from the 90s where ruthless was the rule. So we literally had a label, ruthless records. Like when I heard Versace, 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 how many times you have to say Versace? Uh, yeah, I was like, ooh, I'm a fan now. <laughs> So the Drake song we're going to talk about is Hold On, We're Going Home. Just hold on, going home. I feel like when you put this down on the piece of paper, I was kind of like, huh, it's an early enough song, but it, it for me, I feel like it just brings on a certain type of emotion. Mm-hmm. Like you just feel good. You feel in love. It's summertime. You might've been walking outside all day in New York, but you're just meeting up with that, that person mm-hmm. you're getting a drink you're meeting up with that person. And we are, mm-hmm. we're going home. <laughs> like yes. It just, it's, yes. just a, it's just a feeling and it's a dreamy feeling. Um, so why has this stuck with you? Cause it came out in 2013. So it's been almost 10 years. So what is it about this song that really like? One, I love that you love the record. I feel like I talked to so many people who are Drake fans or not Drake fans, and they kind of roll their eyes to the ceiling about this very successful, very dreamy, very huge record. So um, I'm happy that you like it. I feel like we're a part of the same sisterhood, but I usually do anyway. But the reason why I like it is a couple of reasons. One is because I like dreamy songs like that. I like Janet Jackson's Let Me Take You on an Escapade. I like Aretha Franklin's Daydreaming and I'm Thinking of You. I like those songs, like you said, that make you feel like, ooh, this could be my person. Even if it's for the afternoon, honey. You know what I mean? It's like, this could be my person. I'm trying to hang. I'm trying to think about that song from Music Soul Child, his first song. Uh, what was it? 
montage. You know what I'm talking about. We could just chill. We could just hang out. We could just chill, whatever it is. It's like, that's what that song is for me. So I like it for that reason. I also like it because of the specific lyrics. When he says, it really makes me emotional when I think of the lyrics because I think I'm ascribing meaning to the lyrics that maybe Drake doesn't actually mean. Mm-hmm. But that's what listeners do, right? We 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 attach our own selves to the to the sound and the lyrics. But when he says you're a good girl and you know it, you know exactly who you could be. See, I don't read that as there's good girls and there's bad girls. You mm-hmm. know, there's fast girls and there's girls that stay close to home. I read that as you're good, like you're excellent. You do you do proper things in this world. You know exactly who you could be. Mm-hmm. So that's when I hear that. Not to take it all the way back, but there's a song from the OJ's called "Used to Be My Girl." Yes, and when he says. And I'm like, but he said the girl was so smart, though. I heard when he said that. It's it's whack that we have we have to search and find and claim those moments in romantic songs where people are appreciating women for their minds and what they can do. But I do respond to that in Drake's We're Going Home. And the last reason that I have is because the song is a whole fucking stunt. Pardon my language. <laughs> it's like... Who was out that same year? Was it Justin Timberlake and the 2020 experience? It So, yes. So 2013 was Justin Timberlake's 2020 experience, both parts one and part two. That was a big moment for him. That was the year that Beyonce's self-titled album, the visual album, the digital drop came out. So it's like it that year for music was absolutely crazy, especially with the two of them putting albums out because they're vets. They've been doing it. I hear all that, but I also hear in, hold on, we're going home, a lot of the kind of energy that Timberlake gives mm-hmm. respectfully. And I feel like Drake was like, oh, is this what we're doing? Okay, <laughs> well then let's do it then. If music is sometimes a game, and it is, that people play to win, there's charts that still matter. There's streaming numbers that still matter. There's historical precedents about who can sing what that still matter. And Drake took a, let me tell you something. He made it look like light work. Yeah. Just to wrap Drake up, you chose a song where he's singing, and mm-hmm. I don't think he raps on this at all. Um, and singing has been a huge part of his sound and his career. Um, what about this stuff with you? Especially since the vocals are super simple. He's not doing anything. He's not, you know, tickling, up, like walking up and down a scale. Like he's just, is giving one octave and is giving feel good. So what about this? It makes me think there's so much before him. There's so much left. 
He hasn't even stepped on the gas. That's what's wild. And let me just say, I don't think that he's a perfect person. There's moves that Drake makes, Chris Brown, that I cannot even, like, deal with him on. But with regards to his talent, singing, rapping, as an executive, mm-hmm. an ambassador for the whole city of Toronto, he he just, whatever era that we're in, and it's a weird and wild and scary era, mm-hmm. he got his finger on the pulse of what the culture is, though. That's what he has. Um, I'm going to keep it moving to my personal favorite, who I think does not get the flowers that he deserves, um, especially in these internet streets with these disrespectful folks that have clearly never heard confessions before. Um, So I'm talking about Usher Raymond, the fourth. (laughs) Um, And the song that you chose to talk about is Confessions Part Two specifically. It comes off of Usher's Confessions album, which is basically his magnum opus. Um, And it's hits top to bottom, whether it was singles, whether it was deep cuts, there's there. (laughs) It's a perfect album. And I, I believe one of the last really, really, really great R&B albums that we've heard. And I'm not saying R&B doesn't exist now um, at all, but R&B in the form and the state that it was in then, especially when you had to really lean into vocals, lean into talent. Um, we're just talking about someone who's been on stage with Michael Jackson and James Brown to just keep it cute. And that was casual for Usher. So clearly I'm I'm here for him. Uh, I go up for him, but... What is it about Confessions Part 2 that you love so much? Because like I said, that that album, whether it's the regular or the deluxe version, it, it's it's endless. So what is it about a Confessions Part 2? I really agree with everything you're saying about that album. And I'm not even one that always listens to the whole album. Mm-hmm. Because I'm over here listening to Confessions Part 2. I'm a person that listens to things back to back to back to back. I will make you sick. I will have my neighbors mad. I'll be like, uh uh-uh, run that back. So she's not lying. I've witnessed. (laughs) It'll hypnotize me. It will make me high listening to a song back to back to back to back. Um, Especially if I know the lyrics, which I do. Um, I just, I'm not going to DJ quick it out because I'm really, Usher's voice is Mm -hmm. supernatural. I can think about him. There's a song on this. Do you remember when there was a movie called Black Panther and there was a soundtrack to that movie and there was a song on that soundtrack it was a duet with Usher and Monica. Do the search. He's singing in baritone. Let me tell you about Let's Straighten It Out. First of all, we're hearing it for the boys today, but we really do need to do an episode about Monica. I was a deep fan ever since that song. But the thing that I love about Usher so much is not just his ability as a dancer, supernatural, ability as a vocalist, 
supernatural. Um, if we're hearing it for the boys, a lot of times we like the cute boys. Usher's giving you all that times infinity. Uh, I've had the pleasure of writing about him when I haven't written about him. Had the pleasure of putting him on the cover of Vibe. Uh, been at photo shoots with him. Just a pleasant, pleasant individual. But the thing that I love about him more than, plus he his first wife or whatever wife that was, is from Oakland. So, you know, he has points, even though that didn't work out. But the thing is, he tells stories with his voice, though. I mean, everything that I've heard about the lyrics and the story of Confessions Part 2 is that it's really a story about Jermaine Dupree, um, who, who uh, he and Brian Michael Cox, I believe, um, are writing in production on that song. And it's like, oh, no, it's not about Usher. You know, it's not about his real life. I don't know why I'm talking in that voice. But I don't care. Like, I literally don't care. In my mind, it's like I'm 13 and he is really singing a true and complete detailed story about whatever he has done personally to mess up his life between two women and mess up two women's lives. Like, I remember being, like, truly mad at him from afar. Like, you did what now? You got somebody pregnant and your girl has a baby on the way? And this is part two of your confessions? Well, because this is also, this is before he was married. This is just after the time that he dated Chili. Or he might have still been dating her at the, when it got so people were that the speculations were insane. Maybe that's why I was mad at him from afar, because in my mind, not like with logic, mm-hmm. but with the passion of a fan feeling like because he put so much emotion into the storytelling that he does with his voice and his vocal arrangements, man, listen, when he says man, I'm grown and I don't know what to do. I don't know why that's so deep to me, but it is. And also just the lyrics, God bless Cox and Dupree because those lyrics are a movie. It's like they were thinking of the video treatment as they wrote the song. It's an amazing record. So he was coming off of 8701, the album, which is one of his best works, I'd say also. Um, But he was 26 when this came out. This is 2004. The album's 18 years old now. So why do you think that this project aged as well as it has? And is it your favorite Usher project? Confessions is a forever album. I mean, we were just speaking in at the top of the show about Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life. That's a forever album. Usher's Confessions, it's a forever album. People will be listening to Confessions long after everyone who was alive when Confessions was recorded is gone. It's that pure. It's that good. It doesn't require a special knowledge of the time to be enjoyed. You can enjoy it just for the sound of the music. You can enjoy it for the sound of Usher Raymond's voice. 
You can enjoy it for the storytelling. There's so many ways in. As you said, you can enjoy it for the hits or you can enjoy it for the the deep album cuts. It, there's there's a million ways in. And once you get there, you j- you don't want to leave. Why do you think, because um, Usher has been around for a long time since he was a teenager. Um, so why do you think that he kind of went from an industry sweetheart um, to an artist who has amazing music, but that seems to not necessarily be revered by this newer generation of artists, but also just fans in general. Um, and it seems like people just kind of see him as some like old music guy. Um, what do you think happened and what that shift was? Taj, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know. On some levels, I don't care. Um, I just recently saw Lionel Richie in Las Vegas and I at a musical residency that he's doing there at the Wynn. And I know that Usher has one up. I, I hope I get to see it. Lionel Richie doesn't care. Mm. Okay, he doesn't care. He's sitting on 100 million albums sold. Everybody in the audience sold out. Sold out. Knew every single word. Now, some of the words knew every single word to every single song. People have put on their cute outfits to come see Lionel Richie. He's 72. Do you know what lies before Usher Raymond? The same. If you don't like him, buy more tickets for me. Uh, My last thing on Usher was just kind of like, what do you think it is about him that defines his star quality? I mean, if you're asking me, it's the eyelashes. End of story. (laughs) (laughs) And always was. We are here now, uh, and we're going to talk about Wale. Please. Um, So in case y'all can't tell, Danielle loves her some Wale. Um, So I'm going to jump right into it. What about Wale made him one of your favorite rappers? Oh, it's the poetry. You can say a lot of things about Wale, but what you can't say is that he's not poetic. He brings you all the drama with a side of melodrama. Wale is giving you the actual sex, too. He's giving you some of that, like, a rapper on the road, can't get serious, just I'm in your town, but you know I really do like you, but I'm on my way on a private jet. You know that thing that the boys do. But he's also giving it, in some songs especially, things like, I really do kind of want to stay with you. But girl, it would be bad. Mm. I'm 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 not okay to be in a relationship with you. And to be honest, I'd rather hear that from the outset than, you know, six months in and now I'm in love. And there's something about also something in Wale that I think people don't get or don't respond to that his fans do. And I'm also, I've been out a lot for it to be a pandemic. I was just at a Wale show in downtown Los Angeles. He's another one that I love it when fans know all the words to songs and Wale has uh, fans like that, but he's sincere. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes people look upon sincerity as odd or like 
he's not protecting himself. But see, to me, that's what makes Wale a great writer and a great MC is that he's sincere. Like, I believe. And I didn't off the rip. But then I saw him live. This is way back when he was still coming off Nike boots and all that. Um, I saw him live in New York at a small show at the Hudson Hotel in uh, New York City, right off of Central Park. I went, again, because uh, Elliot needed to go for work. I think I should have been going for work, but just wasn't interested. Who's our friend that wrote about um, Wale for Vibe magazine? Brad. Bradley Wheat. Bradley Wate, as he is now. And Brad wrote about Wale, and I loved the story. So I was somewhat curious. I love live music. I swear by it. You can't hide when you're up there, and you really can't hide when you're at a small whack show, like on a hotel patio, and people are like talking over you, trying to rap, and clinking glasses, and half paying attention. Let me tell you how quickly Wale wrapped everybody up and got everybody involved with people. It wasn't even his crowd. They weren't fans. They were. He was doing like a... It might have been like a Amex check or like, you know what I mean? It was like a corporate gig. And he got everybody together super quickly and reminded them that they was in the presence of a poetic genius and somebody that was going to go on to huge stardom and somebody who was bringing them like some real rap music. And I looked at Elliot. I was like, oh, my God. So this guy is good. I met him that night. He came over and said hello. And I literally have been not just a fan ever since, and I rarely say this about celebrities, but have been a friend. I wish him well in every step he takes. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, um, but what do you find to be so brilliant about him and his style, but especially because he always remains very, very true to Washington, D.C., and is probably one of the few artists, if not the only one that really has go-go incorporated in their music where it's like, it's mainstream. Like any Wale fan coast to coast, you've gotten a taste of go-go and what that DC sound really is. Hello, so remind you the sky when I'm in it. We on cloud now for that minute. He represents for who he is. I wish he would talk about himself more, to be honest. I wish he would tell his own story. I wish he would talk more about how much he loves D.C. and why he is the way he is. I wish he would talk more. He represents fully for Nigeria and for Africa. But I want more detail. Come on, Wale. Like, we're making a safe space for you, kid. Like, give it to us. I love that about Wale, too. I I would also really love to hear him do, if he were interested in it now, just some collaboration with some of the artists coming out of Africa because the Afrobeats movement, um, the, I want to say it's called Ampiano movement with the music coming out of Africa right now is so, 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 so huge. Um, whether it's Wizkid or Born a Boy um, mm. or anyone coming behind them, it would just be great to um, see, especially with so many Black people here rooted in America, 
going back and making the journey to Nigeria and Ghana um, now more than ever year after year, just con- reconnecting with our roots. He would be a great, I would love to just. I would too. Maybe it's forthcoming. Maybe it's forthcoming. Just like we were talking about Drake. I say so much is in front of him. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that's the case with Wale. I see growth. I see him also trying to branch out into acting and things like that. I think he's still, you know, like so many of us, you know, we all are on this journey trying to figure out what the, if we can, what the end game is. So, yeah. you know, I think that there's, um, I think there's a lot of space in front of him to be doing that because I agree with you. It would be fire. So out of his catalog, Mm-hmm. You chose Lotus Flower Bomb. Um, yes. and it's a, S- second place would be bad. It's a, both duets, um, mm. both heartfelt. Uh, Lotus Flower Bomb mm. is a duet with Miguel that dropped in 2011. Um, mm. And that was right before Miguel had dropped Kaleidoscope Dream. Flower Bomb, let me guess your favorite fragrance. And you got that bomb. <laughs> I'm trying that in nature. Oh. Um, so, you know, they were both like on the rise. It just felt like two worlds were colliding in the right moment. And it was like perfect alignment because I think that it should have gotten the Grammy for best duo or group that year. That's just like song by a duo or a group just because mm-hmm. it's a perfect song to me. But um, why is this your favorite Wale song? Poetry. Wale writes. OK, that's what Wale does. He writes. And also, I think that he actually likes women. Mm. I'm not saying he acts right all the time. Um, But I think he actually likes the company of and appreciates the just conversation and wisdom that women bring. I think he actually is comfortable also in the presence of smart women which is probably why I like him too. Just having had uh, real conversations with him. But I, I can't even get into Wale's cadence because it's... No, please do. please. No, but it's so specific to him. Like, it's so like little... Like, it's got still got that Nigerian in it, you know, but that DC, as you said, in it. A um, little bit global citizen in it. Um, still keeping it super hood though. Um, but when he's like, no disrespecting baby, just trying to make you smile, try to keep my spirits up. That's why I lays it down. Hello. (laughs) You know, and when he says, we're talking about like Drake saying you're a good girl and you know it. And here Wale is saying, so I clap for her. She deserves applause. Like, come on. Like, Carmel Macchiato's when Shreddy gets to work. It's like thoughtful. He's not making that up. You don't make up those types of details. If you're a rapper or a songwriter and you think to yourself, oh, I want to write a cute song about a guy that is really into like um, being considerate of his partner. Um, so what would be considerate would be, oh my God, what if she had coffee at at her desk when she got to work. Okay, that's one type of songwriter. And you're going to make it halfway. But see, he's talking about Carmel Macchiato. Specific. One, specifics. 
Also, how do those words even sound? Those words sound caramel macchiato. <laughs> I might have to order that myself later. I'm just saying, like, he's just, first of all, lotus flower bomb. Mm. Can we discuss the title? It's really, it's too much. This is enough. It's everything. I'm going to have to play this when we're done because I'm like, yes. Ooh. Can I blow your mind? I can't. Navigating through her eyes. Destination to her thighs. Tosh, I'm grown. You need to get me (laughs) off the Wale topic. Like, I'm grown. And married. I am lucky that Elliot is even like, do you want to go to the Wale show with me? Honestly. <laughs> no, it sounds like this song just sounds like he had the experience. And every time he left the person, he was like on the Blackberry at the time, probably, or just like pen to yes. paper, writing it down. And then coupled with Miguel and knowing the type of songwriter Miguel is. Yes. Yes. But see, it's, but it's that work ethic. Also, Taj, that's what you're speaking about. You're speaking about a commitment to creativity. Mm-hmm. You're not, that's what you're speaking about. So I think that's also what I respond to, especially as a writer myself. Mm-hmm. Man, listen, you're going to forget the Carmel Macchiato detail if you don't write it down, as you just said. That was it. That was yeah, it? Yeah, that was it for Wale. Um, okay, good. So I, I want to take it to Tevin Campbell. Mm-mm. And Mr. And we talk for a minute, girl, I want to know your name. Um, and I can't. I someone can't. who collaborated early in his career with Quincy Jones, someone who has a voice that came up in an internet challenge lately that was called the Can You Talk Challenge. And we just sat and watched people across America, including some of um, R&B's best male singers, really try to get up in there in the Tevin Campbell register and just couldn't quite make it. <laughs> They were trying, but they would have to like take it down an octave or two. Um, But this song has stood the test of time. You tell me, you tell us, the Black Girl Songbook listeners, why is Can We Talk so timeless? Is it the voice, the lyrics, the feeling that you, because it's a song that gives an immediate feeling. Like, why can't we just, why can't we get over it? It's hard to express longing without seeming, like, thirsty. To just really express desire and want without sounding, like, desperate and even creepy. And Tevin Campbell, with the help of Kenneth, Babyface Edmonds, the genius, he just got right there with us. I mean, he was a teenager, I do believe, when he recorded this record. Something about it is so pure. It's just the question, and this is testament to Babyface, is so basic and straightforward. Mm -hmm. Can we talk? Can we talk, baby? Can we talk for a minute? It's like, These songs where the guy is like humble to the moment, man, they will get you every time. He and that smile that Tevin had in the video, just a sweetness, Mm -hmm. but still a strength. Do you know what I mean? It it's No, I I do, because I'm thinking about 
him showing up on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to surprise Ashley to sing happy birthday to her and her fainting. Um, So like, you know, I'm thinking about that moment. I'm also just curious as to what your take is on this song's ability to kind of cut through when this was the time of New Jack Swing, which is a totally different energy. It's a totally, it's like the energy of New Jack Swing is something that um, was captured in that time and was recaptured by an artist we'll talk about in a few, um, a couple of years ago. But can we talk cutting through that? What do you think? Do you think it's just the honesty of the lyrics? Do you think it's the voice? Or or do you think it's just because it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a good love song. We love it. It's a classic love song. It's a love song for all time. I mean, Tevin Campbell, I hesitate always to use the word in music that somebody was discovered by somebody. I feel like that's, it doesn't say a lot about either party. But he came up under the tutelage of Quincy Jones, one of the best producers and composers, executive producers, really in the history of American music. Mm. Okay, so then he comes up under the tutelage of, as mentioned, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, who really is moving more and more closely to that same level as Quincy. You add to that the purity of the voice, the sincerity, frankly, the youth. There's no, there's no heartbreak in Tevin yet. It doesn't feel like it at all. Everything just seems quite possible. He's asking, can we talk? And everything in his voice is imagining that the answer is going to be yes. Mm -hmm. That's what that song sounds like. I mean, we can talk about what was going on at that time. Heavy New Jack Swing, which could really be a different show because I'm a person that believes that New Jack Swing is is R and B. I don't I don't necessarily set it out apart and different mm-hmm. from R and B. Um, and I think that if anybody was leading the space at that time, yes, it was Teddy Riley and L.A. Reid and Babyface were you know heavy into their uh, creative partnership at that time. And if those were the big R&B pop looks, I don't understand right now why one was called something and the other one wasn't called something. Mm. I just, that's never been like a, a, like a differentiation or, a, or for me. It's something I really think I should probably end up writing about, but yeah, I just don't. I don't see like Tevin being at odds with the with like New Jack Swing. I feel like everybody out there was making some of the best pop rhythm and blues. Man, everyone talks about 90s rap. 90s uh R&B was this stealthy little like Man, it was everything. The pop and bean. That's what I, I call it. Yes, call it that. Yes, where my girl's at. Pop Let's go. Bean. So just to put a button on Tevin, 
you know, we know him for Can We Talk. We know that he had these songs, Tell Me What You Want to Do and I'm Ready. Mm. Um, mm. And both of them were high up on the charts. But then it's just kind of like he disappeared. So, I mean, we touched on this a little bit yesterday, but what do you think the reason was, especially when someone is built up so much and and kind of like a golden child in a space that they're in. And then all of a sudden it's just like, but where are they? Everybody's not built for it is the first thing. Everybody doesn't even necessarily want it. Mm. Even if they are built for it, you know, being a big old pop star is not for the uh, mild at heart. There used to be, I don't know if there is as much now because we're in the streaming era, but there used to be so much money in being a pop star. There used to be so much fan loyalty. There used to be so much I don't know, just it was a different time. And I don't put markers like, oh, that was the jamming time and this is the whack time. It was just a different time. There was no internet. Hmm. You could live a whole life that didn't show up anywhere. That's no longer possible. Um, I think maybe, you know, that Tevin Campbell didn't want that. And we should also remember that, you know, the 80s and 90s, Man, it just wasn't that easy necessarily to be yourself if yourself didn't fall exactly in line with looking and acting like a straight black girl or a straight black male. Regardless even of what you was at, how you were actually living or what your choices were or what your desires were or what your, you know, your identity actually was, not even all of that, just in terms of image. It was hard to be Prince. Prince with the with the little heels and stuff. Prince with the blowout, pushback, wash and set, whatever Prince was given on any individual day. It was hard for Sylvester to be Sylvester. It was hard for Luther Vandross to be Luther Vandross. Mm-hmm. It was hard for Rick James to be Rick James. I mean, a lot of times he made it hard on himself. But if you weren't just, you know, Coming out looking like cool-ass Marvin Gaye, who didn't live to tell the story. Stevie Wonder, always humble, always amazing. Always, you know, seeming like with a wife and kids and just, you know, being everybody's superstar. If you weren't giving these very clear-cut American, black, straight, male, you know, clean fingernails, clean teeth, um, just everything all together... Nah, man, even in the pre-internet era, they made it hard for you. And I think they made it hard on Tevin. I feel that. I, you know, before Trudy comes and gets us, uh, you, to segue out of Tevin, who, like we've just touched on, was is an amazing talent um, mm-hmm. with a song that has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time because we'll play it for whoever mm-hmm. is around. It's, it's, it's one of those songs, like before I let go, you're going to hear it on a Prince playlist. Yes. Um, you mentioned Prince. Before we get to Prince, we've got to talk about Tevin Campbell's first solo hit round and round off of his album, Graffiti Bridge, which was actually produced by the purple one. And, Mm-hmm. Prince is here on our list. Purple Rain is mm-hmm. here on our list. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start, my godmother is a huge, huge, huge Prince fan. So I wanted to just kind of start with prior to Purple Rain, were you a Prince fan, but also were you one of those people who had to go back and forth between whether it was Michael or Prince? Because I feel like the Michael or Prince moment was something for everybody at some point and still is something that we talk about today. So let's start there. Was it was it Michael or Prince or you were just kind of like everybody, both at once? I was like everybody. I wanted Rick James, Prince, and Michael Jackson. And with regard to these like little what rivalries or fan base rivalries or whatever or whatever it's between Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson say that period 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 to me are you with Janet or are you with Michael to me is the conversation is the conversation and i will bring up shine bright all the time And I will say that I write about that specific relationship very much in Shine Bright. Yes, I can't, I can't say Michael Jackson or Prince. No. Also, don't try to act like Rick James wasn't right there because he was. Rick James has, ugh, everybody forgets. Mm -hmm. I like Prince from the beginning. For that matter, I write about Prince a lot in um, Shine Bright. That was high school for me. I had the controversy poster up in my locker. Uh, and I went to Catholic school. And the nuns were like, I don't know if that's allowed. I was like, he has a crucifix. He's wearing a rosary. <laughs> they were like, but he's naked. <laughs> I've been advocating for music for a long time. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, we used to go to high school. My school, Look, we used to have high school dances. The Catholic schools in L.A. still have them. Like my nephew, I'll be like, what are you doing this weekend? He's like, well, we have a dance on Friday. Um, I remember being at a high school dance and they played head. The nuns were like, is that? And we were like, no. Ooh. Mm-mm. It's just the jam, though. Enjoy it, Sister Mary David. So <laughs> I've been a Prince fan since day one. I'm blessed to have seen Prince live. But I, I was I'm of that age that I saw Purple Rain, the film, the day it came out at the theater. I think I was 19. So my thing is, I loved so many Prince records. And the soundtrack to Purple Rain, there's re- the, I don't like Computer Blue. Okay, we're going to leave that out. <laughs> but but there's no bad song on that album. There's, I don't know who has more swag. I don't know who had more swag, really, as a musician, recording artist, singer-songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, actor style king then then prince but purple rain it's just something when i think about people putting lighters in the air like they used to now they put phones up 
But people used to really be burning their fingernails off, holding a lighter up at, at rock shows. And But when I think about like our rock song, I really do think about Purple Rain. There's many, and there's many good ones, but Purple Rain is a perfect rock song. I don't care what color you are. I'm counting all rock songs, all arena rock songs, I should say. And there's none better. I haven't heard it. He says, I only want to, and it's just such a romantic record too, but it's just, I only want to see, what is the Purple Rain? We don't know. It doesn't necessarily sound super appealing, literally. But just the idea of like somebody wanting to see you laughing in the rain, the way he's singing it. I never wanted to be your weekend lover. I only wanted to be some type of friend. Man, listen, I always say this, and I know that we're hearing it for the boys today. And I'm glad we are and we're laughing because we're going on too long. (laughs) But the fact is, Black Girl Songbook is the place in the space where Black women in music receive the credit that, that they are due, that we are due. But really, Black men, Black people, Black artists, they just don't get enough credit for the work that they put in. However many accolades they receive, it's not commensurate with what they created. So that's why we go on too long, because there's never enough. There's not enough that can be said about Prince. There's not enough that can be said about Tevin Campbell. There's not enough that can be said about Wale, Usher, Denise Williams, Whitney Houston, all the all the women and men that we've hosted or talked about on Black Girl Songbook. It's never enough. No, to just wrap up Prince, um, because this is the place and the space where Black women in music get their flowers, I think that before we move on, we just have to acknowledge the fact that Prince was a champion of women. Thank you. through music. We're talking Vanity Six. We're talking about someone who had Misty Copeland on stage with him while Misty Copeland is fighting her own fight as a Black woman in uh, ballet who made strides. But to put her on stage with him was huge. To know that Esperanza Spalding is someone that was under his wing. To know that he's one of Janelle Monae's biggest inspirations, but also someone that he had under his uh, wing, um, which is seen very clearly um, in her performance art and her music. Um, I just think that that was just an important point to just uh, make because a lot of artists can talk about women and wax poetic and stuff like that. But, you know, some of these artists really do the work. and, And for me, the way that Prince made sure to highlight women is kind of in the same way that Kobe Bryant made sure, God rest his soul, to um, put on for the WNBA in a way that not many people were um, at the time. And we've seen them get a lot more um, shine since its passing, which is unfortunate, uh, unfortunate, but um, definitely just being an advocate um, and being there and pushing women forward because they had the platform and the voice to um, do so. That's absolutely true about Prince. I can think of, I was on a panel one time, And the panel was 
a group of women who had all been sound engineers for Prince. It was like five or six of them. I was like, I was the moderator of the panel. I knew what I was walking into, but it was still something to see when you got there. They were on the boards for him on classic albums. So as you say, there were all these women artists, but then he was also working with women creatively behind the scenes. And we didn't even, you know, Sheila E as well. Yeah, I didn't mention Sheila E. Mm-hmm. Which is huge. So uh, I'm going to skip forward um, and switch gears just a little bit because we're going to talk about Meek Mill really quick and his song Dreams and Nightmares. Uh, you know, Meek Mill is a man of his city. It's clear in his music. It's clear in his voice. It's clear in his drive. Um, it's It's clear in his visuals. Um, so, you know, this song, he's straight out of Philly. It's gritty. What is your initial one word association when you hear this song? It's, it's tragic. Mm. To, to me. Um, I, I love this record. Every scene in it is a problem. Every scene in it, somebody about to die. Every scene in it, somebody doing something ugly to survive. And it speaks to me on a level, as I know I say it often, but it's true. I'm not just from Oakland. I'm from East Oakland. And um, we're a neighborhood of great people, a big old neighborhood of great people. So much history in East Oakland. My great-grandparents came up in the 1920s to East Oakland. But, you know, it's problems in East Oakland. It's problems in West Oakland, North Oakland, and there is no South Oakland. So um, something about this song really reminds me of the boys that I knew. Frankly, the boys I used to run around with, me and my sister, talking about those house parties I used to have where they're asking, could they play DJ Quick's, you know, um, Nastiest Records. That's who we was partying with. And so... When I hear Meek, especially, you know, everybody loves, and I do, the Philadelphia Eagles loved it too. It was their theme song. They were trying to win the Super Bowl. But that last, one of those last ones where he flips the cadence and you hear him hyping himself up and he's hype and he's just talking so many specifics about his neighborhood and everything is N-word this and N-word that and N-word this and N-word that. But when he says, Still on that hood shit, my Rolls Royce on, he ain't gonna remember me. I say remember me. That's the kind of thing that boys say that feel like they're gonna die young. And I've known a lot of boys that have died young. When he says, in the very end, it was something about that Roly when it first touched my wrist had me feeling like that dope boy when he first touched that brick. I'm gone. I get super hype every time I hear it. It's a tragedy, but I get super hype every time I hear it. And then it's a tragedy. You see the loop I'm in. Well, let me just go back to that because I feel like if you're from the New York, Philly, I feel like if you're from the East Coast, the Northeast specifically, this is your jam. You go out, they drop it in the club, you're losing it. 
I remember. Yes. I remember being in the club in 2012 when this just came out. I'm with my homegirls dressed up cute on a Sunday night. No, we got work on Monday morning, but we're losing it. And it's an anthem. It's one that yes. that won't rest. It won't quit. Have you seen another rookie really come out the gate with an anthem like this? That's this impactful. I'm thinking. And when you have to think too hard, then it gets worrisome. <laughs> out the gate? I don't know about out the gate. I mean, what's another anthem like this? Like, period. I think about Hit em Up, which is hard to compare to anything, but it's not really that hard to compare to Dreams and Nightmares, no. Fools are mad. People thinking they're going to die. There's dope. There's music. There's... Base, too much liquor, too much in the streets. People are bored. People are mad. People are tired of being bothered by law enforcement. People are broke. People want to get out, but also like where they are. That's a lot of tension right there. I could compare it to that, but, but, but Tupac did not come out the gate with Hit Him Up. He didn't. I'm trying to think of somebody recent. I can think of the stuff my nephew loves. I can be a young boy and blue. And my nephew has me listening to all manner of things. Um, out the gate. I don't know. Roddy, maybe, with that song. I can't think of that big, big song he had like two years ago. But I don't know. With that energy, though, that energy, maybe Kendrick, but out the gate, mm-hmm. it's when you add out the gate. Okay, Josh, what's the last one? Come on now. Okay. okay. The last person we're going to touch on is Bruno Mars. Woo! So... You picked That's What I Like from his 2016 album, 24 Karat Magic. Um, the single was released in 2017, but I, I kind of wanted to start on a different note because it's something that, you know, we whisper about on Twitter and the internet and people talk about on Clubhouse and this, this and that. But first things first, Bruno Mars is a brown person. We can all see that. He's Filipino and Puerto Rican. He is a master musician. I think that that just kind of goes without saying we see him. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a writer. Um, this album that that's what I like came off of 24 Karat Magic was rooted in New Jack Swing um, and that R&B era from the early 90s. And he said when he released the album, he was basically paying homage to that genre, to the people behind the genre. He did a concert, a TV special up at the Apollo Theater. Um, form with the community. His bandmates are Black. His backup singers are Black. Um, So the question is, is Bruno Mars appropriating Black music? And and I'm asking, I don't think he does. Um, Just because for me, I just feel like, well, what kind of music do we expect those who are not Black, um, but are quote-unquote ethnic to make? But do, do you feel like he's appropriating Black music? Or is it just a deep appreciation and a masterful understanding? I really 
I really feel like this. None of it is ever going to be okay mm-hmm. until the Black people that originally created the music get the credit and the money that they are owed. It's never not going to be a sore point. It's never not going to be a sore point. When I look at Bruno, I see a person of color. And I don't, I can't get all into like, well, you know, if you're Puerto Rican, then you're Afro-Latin. And, and then I'm also part Filipino myself. And then it's like, to me, that's not even where the point is. The point is we play these games with each other about like, and I hate it because the lighter you are, the writer you are. R-I-G-H-T-E-R. So you're always going to have an advantage if you're more light-skinned, if you mix with something. If you are anything other than African-American or African, the work that you do is always going to be considered less than. It's always going to look like it's available on sale or you could take it for free and remake it in any way that you want to. It'll be more palatable to the wider audiences. And so there it is. And oh, black people that originally made it, y'all just need to be happy that y'all inspired us. So I don't really look at it like, is he, is, is he, is he appropriating? I look at it like, when can black people get the respect and the money that we deserve for everything that we've created? Because if we had that, we really would not care what Bruno was doing. So that's what I like is one of the smoother tracks on this particular album. What is it about this song that stands out for you? Strawberry champagne on us. Lucky for you, that's what I like. That's what I like. It's the storytelling again. It's the storytelling. There's a lot of writers on that song when you look at the credits. So it looks like a lot of people really put work in. But listen, you're just never going to forget strawberry champagne on ice. That's just, you're just not going to forget that. That's, we back at the Carmel Macchiatos now. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This is, this is what you call supreme songwriting. This is what you call also singing with like intention and it's so sexy. The scene he sets, the music is just everything. And to go back to what you were saying, it's like, and it won Song of the Year at the Grammys. It's not a lot of people of African descent who have stood on the stage for that honor. Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Album of the Year at Grammys. I always say that these are flawed metrics, but they are the metrics that we have. And it does take away a little bit from it. Because you think, well, I mean, is it the curly hair? Uh, what is it? Like, what is it? It's that black people aren't valued for what they do, for what we do. We're not valued as much as anybody that's lighter and therefore righter uh, than we are. So it's hard, especially when the music is wonderful. I think that Bruno does a great job of acknowledging his inspirations and what he's trying to do. And I will say that's more than a lot of people do. Um, I think that over the years, his sound has just grown and shifted and just changed uh, sometimes just based on the time, but he seems to just be a man that goes through different like eras and decades um, when it comes to showing his inspo and showing, having that inspiration show up in his music. Um, Cause we can see 
the James Brown um, of it all. So when you when you see him perform and you you see that quality and then you hear the music, how does that make you feel? Clearly, I need to go to the uh, Vegas residency because I didn't really know that Bruno was out here giving us James Brown. Like, is he doing the splits on stage? So a lot of <laughs> um, with uh, Silk Sonic, um, him and Anderson Pop, um, not so sure he's given the splits, but some of his earlier performances and stuff like that, you're absolutely getting that James Brown type of moment, that energy, some of the splits, the dips. Um, the tricks and definitely that that showmanship. That showmanship is definitely what he's getting giving. As long as he continues to acknowledge his inspirations, as long as he does that, it's just the and really messed up part of creating art in this country. It just is. I love to see him with Anderson. I think that matters. I think that Anderson is his own kind of genius. I think they have an amazing chemistry. He got to acknowledge. He got to give back because he's bringing joy. And also, I don't want people to forget James Brown. And I'm not even a huge, dare I say, I'm not even a huge James Brown fan. I'm not a James Brown scholar. He's not necessarily my guy. But I do know the influence that he's had on everything that has come after him. And as you were saying, you know, about Usher and stuff, well, why is he forgotten? Why isn't, you know, Usher, you know, as lifted up maybe as he could be? That does frighten me because the years they do go by. I love the way you yourself, Taj, bring up. James Brown, every time, and Michael Jackson, every time you speak about Usher. So if Bruno was bringing up James Brown every time he speaks in a sincere and respectful way, man, I got other things to be mad at. Amen to that. Man, what a great conversation. And as for me, if you want to hear more from me, you know that I'm always on Twitter and Instagram sharing a little bit of life, a little bit of culture and a little bit of music whenever I can. My name on both platforms is Danamo. That's D-A-N-A-M-O. Team Black Girl Songbook is a brilliant ringer crew. They keep this whole thing together episode by episode. We have Trudy Joseph as our producer, and we are blessed to have her. We have audio producer who does way more than that, Donnie Beecham. We have our story consultant, Tajrani, who asked me all the hard questions on this episode. Thank you, Taj, as ever, for all. Taj is Tajrani at Instagram and Twitter, and she keeps it popping always on her socials. We have DJ Steve Porter on sound design. Our talent booker is Allison Turner. And on additional production supervision, we have Juliette Littman. And brand new to the squad, in her first season, we have Chelsea Stark-Jones. Sean Finnessy is always nearby with advice and encouragement, and we could not be out there in the way that we are if we didn't have Amanda Long as our publicist. Black Girl Songbook is here for you exclusively 
on Spotify via The Ringer. And please do remember that my book, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop, is almost out. It's almost out. So you can pre-order it. You can go online many places. You guys know the spots. But if you're in my hometown of Oakland, California, please do fall through Marcus Books, either in the store or online, and order my book. It's much appreciated. Now, you know, we always have a song for you on the way out. Let's throw it back. Let's throw it back to Denise Williams, who we started this episode with. This is her other number one hit. It's called Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. It's from 1978. It features legendary vocalist Johnny Mathis. So even though we're closing with Denise, we're still hearing it for the boys. Too much, too little, too late. 